so we recently began this uh, journey uh, in, in Joshua two weeks ago. Uh, Joey uh, opened up the book for us. And last week, Aram talked to us about the commissioning of Joshua by, by God. And uh, there was this, uh, this charge given to Joshua to be strong and courageous. But we also had to recognize that it was not a, a call just to be strong and courageous for itself, but because, and it came, it came because, uh, God said, I will be with you. I promise to continue to uh, have my, my presence will continue to follow you. And um, in the last half of chapter one, you know, Joshua begins to take charge. He, he takes it seriously and uh, he begins leading his people into the promised land. Uh, and this is 40 years after their first failed attempt, right? As we read in, uh, in, in the other parts of the Torah, uh, where uh, Moses was trying to lead the people into the promised land after the exodus out of Egypt. And it didn't work uh, because, uh, well, the people sinned. Um, and as a, as a result, um, this is what happens. Forty years later, there's a second attempt. And now Jericho is in their sights. Uh, this city is geographically um, very strategic in the, the, the conquest of the promised land of Canaan um, because it sat right in the, the uh, main um, major artery between the east and the west of the, of the area. In other words, you need Jericho in order to, to take over Canaan. And so uh, Joshua sends out the spies to begin the conquest, just as they did 40 years ago. Uh, and this chapter reads kind of like an espionage novel or a, a spy movie. Um, I mean, I grew up watching James Bond movies, um, and, and it was, you know, it's pretty cool. The, the, the guy always exuded this coolness. He always knew what to order when he went to the bar. Um, he liked to shake it, not stir. No idea what that meant. Uh, but there were these fruits, what I thought were fruits, but I found out they were olives. That's gross. Um, then they had, you know, drive nice cars. There's gadgets. And I think the, the coolest thing about this guy was he always knew how to get out of sticky situations. When it was the very worst situation, you know, the buzzsaw is about to cut him in two or the laser beam is about to shoot him in the face. He gets out somehow. Um, today's story is quite different. The spies are quite incompetent. Uh, they don't get very far. They do not do much on their own, um, and they're not even the focus of the story. Uh, in fact, what we see is that the side character plays the most major role in this story, and that's not the only thing that's surprising about this story. Uh, everything seems to be, be, to be backwards here. Uh, it actually focuses on this Canaanite woman named Rahab, uh, and that's where we're going to spend our time today. We're going to try to understand this woman, Rahab, because she doesn't pop up much in Scripture. In fact, she only uh, her story only exists two parts uh, in Joshua, uh, Joshua 2 and Joshua 6, I believe. And, and yet she shows up in the New Testament as a figure of honor and glory. Something about this woman, uh, something about her story makes her a figure of biblical honor and glory. And we want to ask why. What is it about her story that the biblical writers were so drawn to? And so we'll start there. Uh, first uh, point that we're going to see today is that submission to God is faith lived out. Submission to God is faith lived out. All right. And so let me give some context here as we uh, break down the story. Uh, Joshua has just sent out two spies, um, and we see this in, in chapter one, so, so, or chapter two, verse one, sorry. Uh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, <clears throat> sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And so just like Moses did, his predecessor did 40 years ago, uh, he sends out his spies into the land before the actual conquest. And uh, there's a big difference here. Uh, Moses sent out 10 men. Uh, Joshua sent out two. And if you remember in Numbers uh, 13, uh, there, <laughs> it's interesting because Moses sent out 10 
eight of the spies came back with the wrong news saying, oh no, we can't do this. Those guys are too big for us. We should not go in to, to take over the land. And two came back and said, yes, we should do this. God is going to give us this land. Those two men were Caleb and Joshua. And as a result of those eight saying, don't go, they waited 40 years. And God said, fine, I'm only going to let Caleb and Joshua enter the promised land. Everybody else here, you're going to die. You're going to die before you get to enter into the land. And so I mean, clearly Joshua's learned something from this experience. He's like, no, 10 is too many. Let me just send two. Sends two. All right. Uh, and where do they end up? They end up at a house, uh, uh, the, the lodging of, of a prostitute named Rahab. And, and so I know you, you read that and it's kind of like, wait, are these guys like really distracted from their work? Like, how did they end up there? Like, what's going on? Uh, we don't think that's the case. And I don't think the text is telling us that something immoral is happening, but rather uh, her, her house seems to be a very strategic location for espionage, for spying. Um, as verse 15 will tell us, it says, Then she, Rahab, let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. Uh, and so we see that her house is actually very nicely situated, where uh, they have access both into the city, but also they're so far out on the, on the border, the city walls, that they can leave easily. Um, and it actually gives us uh, visibility. And so and we, we, we would imagine that these guys chose it because uh, that's a place where they can be undercover. Uh, and I also have access um, to both inside and outside. Now, unfortunately, these spies are not very good at their job because one verse in, in verse two, they're caught or not caught, but someone knows what's going on. Verse two, it says, and it was told the king of Jericho, behold, the men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. In other words, the king already knows what they're there for. He's already figured it out. Uh, we don't know exactly how the cat's out of the bag, how uh, maybe they're, they're really, really bad at their job, or maybe they're overheard, or maybe there are insiders. The text doesn't tell us, um, but we know that uh, their enemies know exactly what they're here to do, to search out the land, all right? As a result, he sends uh, men to Rahab's house to, to, man, to demand that she brings out these spies. All right, we see that in verse 3. And then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, for they entered your house, uh, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Uh, and, and so at this point, if you're reading this uh, story, you would imagine it to, to go something along the lines of, Then Rahab said, Okay, brought out the men, and the story's over. It ends. Right? Jer Joshua tries again, you know, chapter three. He brings out, sends out two more men. Like, that's what you would imagine, because it's like they, they went into the city and they're immediately. Uh, caught. Yet this story goes completely haywire because what does Rahab do? Her response, it should shock us. Look at verse four to six. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order, laid in order on the roof. So in other words, instead of giving them up, she hides them. She hides these men and then she, she covers up for them. She misleads the king's men and sends them out uh, to, to go in the wrong direction. And, uh, and we know this because uh, the Israelites were encamped at the place called uh, Shittim, um, and, and it's the eastern side of the Jordan. So it's very logical for her to send the messengers back in that direction because as one would imagine, the spies would run back towards camp. And yet she sends them that way and has 
these men hiding up on her roof. Um, and, and so we need to ask, why? What is it about this woman, Rahab? Uh, why does she lie to the king's men? Because this Canaanite woman has no ties to the people of Israel. Right? There's no prior connection between her and the spies. It's not like, oh, surprise, you know, she meets the spies. It's like, we're actually distant relatives. You know, you know I'm half cousins with you. I'm going to help you out. There's nothing there. She's a foreigner with no direct ties. And yet she gives us an answer. And what we find is in her answer, this is her faith played out in submission to God. This is her faith played out in submission to God. Verse 8 to 11 uh, which we read, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, there was, our, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens, above and on the earth, beneath. This is her submission to the Lord. This is her submitting herself to the God of Israel. And she's saying, even though this means the rejection of my Canaanite identity as a, as a person, I'm acting out in faith to this God of yours. Right? I've heard of what your God has done. What we read about in Exodus, when you were brought out of Egypt, we heard about how your God parted the Red Seas, led you guys through, and then crushed Pharaoh and his army. We heard about what you guys did to, to the Amorite kings. We heard how you destroyed them, and, and we recognized that you guys, as slaves, coming out of a, of a land not your own, had no possible way. There's no possible way that you could have defeated these mighty powers, and yet we know who did it, who did it for you. She, she submits here and she says, it was your God. Verse 9, he says, I know that the, the Lord has given you the land. She's not saying you guys are powerful and great, but I know that the Lord has given it to you. Your God fights on your behalf. And now that she sees the arrival of the spies from Israel, she realized and she believed, oh man, my city's about to fall. Your arrival means Canaan is about to fall. Jericho is about to fall. And the only way I can survive because I believe in your God is to come and join you guys. In other words, Rahab truly believed that what God said was about to happen. And therefore she acted. She acted out of her faith. And this is why uh, Rahab is in the, the hall of faith. If, if you guys know uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, there's this passage, incredible passage, where the writer of Hebrews recounts all the Old Testament uh, figures, uh, the, the most major figures of faith, uh, and, and we call it the, the hall of faith, because these are people whose, whose genuine faith uh, are looked at with honor and glory, right? People like uh, Abel, like Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, all right? The big names, the, the Mount Rushmore of Christianity or, or Old Testament Christianity, and amongst them, is this Canaanite woman, Rahab, in chapter 11, verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Spoiler alert, <laughs> she survives. She makes it into the hall of faith along with Moses, along with Abraham, Noah, Sarah. In other words, she was justified through her faith, which was here clearly evidenced by her actions to save the spies and make a way for God's people. And again, if it's not clear, remember, this is a Gentile woman. 
This is a Gentile woman who has no ties to the Israelites, and yet she has enough faith in God, enough fear in God to submit her life wholly to him. Right? This is her confession that, that Israel's God is the one true God, the, the true God who's in control of all things. And, and, and we saw in, in Hebrews that the biblical writers recognize her for that, that she genuinely believed. And so, I mean, that, that helps us. It's almost like reading a commentary for the Old Testament. Because we read this chapter here in chapter 2, and we might think like, oh, you know, maybe she's just a, she's a traitor. Right? Uh, she's just doing it because she wants to save, her, save herself. But the Hebrew writers are telling us she did it because she had faith in God. That's her, her, her rationale, her purpose. And it helps us understand uh, this, this woman's decision. And, and perhaps there's something here that we Christians need to be challenged by as we look at Rahab's faith lived out in submission to God. We need to turn to ourselves and ask, what does it look like for you to submit your life to God? What does it look like for your faith to, to truly be in submission to our God? Because Rahab sets an example for us, right? She doesn't just confess, yeah, God is supreme. He, he's, he's my redemption, but she actually acts upon it. She submits her life to him by helping out the spies. And it's a costly confession. This is not an easy confession to make and not an easy submission. You guys think about it. If things get, go haywire, right? Uh, if the spies are found on her roof, the kings don't believe, the king's men don't believe her. They go up to the roof. They find those men. What happens? She dies. It's treason. You're literally betraying your own people. Right? Or let's say the spies go back on the word because there's a whole passage here from 15 to 21 where, where you know, they're trying to make a deal where she's like, save my family. And they're like, uh, okay, only if we make it out. Uh, and only if you don't tell everybody about us. And, uh, you know, and, and so they're making the terms. And, and what if the spies go back on the word? And when Israel comes in, they don't save her family. They're dead. Right? Or if the spies are caught as they're escaping the city and they spill the beans, she's dead. And even if things go according to plan, right? They escape, uh, Israel comes in, they take over and destroy Jericho. She loses everything that she's ever known. All her people, all her uh, memories, everything of her life that she's ever known, it's all gone. And see, here's the thing. It's costly, right? We, as Christians today, we have little problem confessing that God is the only way to salvation. If you're a Christian in here, that's like the core tenet of our faith. We're like, yeah, I prayed that prayer. God, you're the only way to salvation. I believe it. Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior. No problem. I think, I think most of us have no problem with that. But, but here's the problem. It's the act of submission that we struggle with, is it not? Yeah, God, you're my God. But you want me to give 10% of my what? You want me to live for you? You want me to sacrifice everything for you? I don't know, God. Right? We, we want him as salvation. We don't want to submit our lives to him. Right? Because it means we're going to have to enter into difficult and challenging times in life. Yes, I confirm that you are my savior, but I'm more than willing to reject and ignore your call to submission to you. And I know that because I do it all the time. Right? It's too costly. Yeah, I, I know there are needs in the church. I know there are families that need help. But I just need more time to do me, God. Like, there's so much on Netflix that I need to watch. Right? Yeah, I, I know my, my child might be called to the mission field, but after they retire, they make sure their, their pension is set. Then they can go to you. Yes, I have the gospel of Jesus. I have the good news of salvation. And I have friends who need to hear it. 
But man, God, do you know how awkward it is when they reject me? Yes, I should give to missions and, and to the poor, but maybe after I buy a house, God, you don't know what it's like to live in San Francisco. I can't afford what I need, what I want. Yes, I could church, I could serve in a, a ministry like Camp Tunes. But that internship looks way better on my resume. And hear, hear me out. Not try to, I'm not here to guilt trip you. I'm speaking as someone who's done all these things, who's felt all these things. But I want us to be honest with ourselves. I mean, I, I want us to be honest with God. That's not how faith works. I mean, can you imagine if Rahab had the same kind of belief that we did? As those spies come in, right? She's talking to them. And then the, the, the king's men come knocking on her door. And she's like, you know, guys, I'm going to be honest with you. Heard about your God. So inspirational. Truly, dang, his, the, the thing he did with the Red Sea, too crazy. Inspires me all the time. I can't do anything for you guys, though. Like, you don't understand how awkward it would be for me and the neighbors if they found out I was harboring spies. Sorry. It'd be a very different story, wouldn't it? Faith without submission to God. It doesn't work. It's not faith. It's not faith. We would be doomed if, if that's what faith looks like. That's intellectual acknowledgement masking itself as genuine faith. And those are not the same thing. And that's what I fear many of us have, an, an imitation faith, a, a fake faith that looks good and yet doesn't hold up. Because faith is supposed to be costly. I think that's a hard thing for, for uh, I think, westernized Christians to hear because we love our comfort. And yet faith, as Jesus tells us, just following him, uh, he describes it as bearing your cross. And that's not just talking about like having some burdens, some extra burdens that non-Christians don't have. Bearing your cross points us to the cross. And the cross is not just a burden. The cross is death. And in other words, Jesus is telling us, to follow me, you have to be willing to die like me. You have to be willing to give up your life like I gave up my life for you. And I saw something similar to this played out during our youth retreat that happened earlier this in, in January. Right? Uh, and, 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 and I mean, it was in the middle of the Omicron surge. It was bad. Right? Spike was going as high as possible. Kids left and right were getting sick. Counselors were getting sick left and right. Uh, and, you know, many people were asking, like, is it wise to go on this trip? And I'm thinking to myself, like, ooh, great question. I don't know. Uh, and, you know, as we're trying to consider, all right, how do we do this safely? We're trying to take all the precautions to, to take 100-plus kids and counselors up to the, the mountains to spend three days together. I mean, this, this is okay because, you know, we see each other for like an hour and a half. Most of us have our masks on, and then we, we, we clear out. Over there, you're staying with these kids for a whole weekend, you're sleeping in the same cabins with them, and no one's going to wear their mask when they're sleeping, right? And so all these questions come up, and I'm talking to the counselors, and I'm like, hey, guys, honestly, you decide what you're going to do. Like, I'm not going to, you know, blame you if you don't go, because I understand how difficult the situation is. And, and I'm telling you, like, guys, I'm paid to go. You're not. Right? There's a difference here. Right? And I'm telling them, I understand you guys have some difficult situations. You guys got to make the decision on your own. And you have to understand with these counselors, there's some... There's a pregnant woman in there. There's someone with, with family members who have underlying medical conditions, right? They have large families that, 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 that are you know, spread out far and wide. There, there are um, teachers who work uh, there. And then within these counselor groups, I, I understand if they don't want to go. It's hard. It's costly. They knew the potential risks, the costs. 
We did everything we could to, to protect everyone, but yet we re recognize there's things outside of our control. They decided to go. They decided to take that cost. Because for them, being able to minister to these children and to preach to them the gospel was worth it. You know, if we're to be like Rahab, if we're to submit our lives to God like her, it's going to come at a cost, and sometimes it's going to be a very great cost. And I'm trying to, you know, trying to help us understand, help myself understand, genuine faith does not apart from submission to God. And he calls us into that difficult, uncomfortable situation uh, that goes against our very nature of self-preservation. And that's actually where we find out what our faith is made of. Right? Real faith endures because the gift that we receive is actually greater than anything we could lose in this life. That's how we rationalize it. That's how it makes sense to us. It's worth it. The cost is worth it. Because I get God. I get to be with him. I get to understand I love him. Right? Rahab believed in God so much that she was willing to give it all up for God because she recognized that the God of Israel was the real deal. She didn't believe uh, if she didn't believe him to be the, the one true God, you, you, you have to understand, she would have never sold all her people. She only did it because she believed he was real, because she believed in what he said. She feared him, and therefore, because she believed in him, she acted. And so, friends, what, what about us? Do you believe in God like Rahab, and does your faith reflect it? Does your life reflect it? Second, grace abounds. God's grace abounds for the very least. You have to understand something. Rahab was the least. The, the text gives us uh, some, some clues about who she is, uh, and, and she has three major strikes against her in the ancient Near East. First off, she's a woman. And in that time, to be a woman is to be less. Uh, as the culture saw it, you were seen as less than a man was. Um, your word was not taken as, as, as uh, it was not given any weight in the, in the court of law. Right? Uh, second, she was a prostitute. Not a noble profession by any means, right? And, and, and we see throughout the New Testament, the Pharisees regularly looked down on them as sinners, right? They were pariahs and outcasted. Third, she was a Gentile. She was not a Jewish person. She was a Canaanite. And uh, the Israelites sometimes saw uh, Gentiles as dogs. And so three major strikes here. Outcasted, mocked, and scorned by all, all right? And why does that matter? You see, I think by human standards, Rahab was the least likely to be welcomed into the family of God. Right? By human standards, we would not have imagined a Canaanite prostitute to be welcomed into the family of God, much less put into the hall of faith. And I am glad that in Hebrews 11:31 it says Rahab the prostitute. They're not trying to like they're not they're trying to make it vague so you're like, "Oh, Rahab, maybe it was a nice lady." you know, who joined later on. No, this is Rahab the prostitute from Joshua chapter 2. The one who was seen as a least of these. All right, if we were writing the narrative of Israel's march into the promised land to, to take over Canaan, Rahab would be the last person we would make as the savior of Israel. None of us would write it like that. We, we would not put her in that place. And may, maybe this helps us trust the, the authenticity and historicity of the, of the scriptures, right? Uh, but, but also because, I think more importantly, it actually points to us as God as the author of the story. It, it points to us as God as the writer and not us, and, and he has made Rahab a figure of honor. 
Uh, look at verse 12 and 14. She's making a, a deal with the spies. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our lives for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. All right? And so here we see Rahab making a deal uh, with these spies saying, if, we, if I help you escape, please promise to save my family when you guys come back. Right? Uh, and, and in her mind, that's the crazy thing. The victory, victory of Israel is already a done deal. <laughs> you don't make this deal unless you believe that they're going to win. Right? If you're betting on the Super Bowl, you don't bet on the Bengals winning unless you believe the Bengals are winning. They did it. If you did, I'm sorry. Also, betting is... Never mind. Wrong topic. Um, but, but what does it show us about Rahab? You know, it shows us her faith in God. It's, it's truly amazing. I already know your God is coming. I know your God is going to win. Can I join you? Can you save my family? Are we allowed to join you? And, and we see that she actually carries out the end of her bargain in verse 15. This is uh, uh, telling the story of their escape, right? She let them down by rope through her window for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the, in the city walls, all right? So she, she, she lets them through uh, the window. She, they escape. Uh, she actually sends them into the hills in the, in, in the opposite direction in chapter, uh, verse, 15, verse 16. Uh, and she said to the spies, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way, all right? Uh, and so she actually uh, sends them in the, the direction uh, away from, from the, the men, the king's men, uh, and tells them to hide and wait till they come back and then go back home, all right? And as a result, uh, we see that at the end of chapter two, the spies make it back to Joshua and they report everything that's happened uh, and they tell them, uh, tell Joshua about uh, Rahab. Um, and at this point, uh, we're gonna cheat a little bit because we're spoiling what's to come. Um, but what we find later on in chapter, uh, later on in Joshua, when, when the Israelites do come in, this is salvation for Rahab and her family. This very deal that she makes happen, that it, it goes through and, and God welcomes her into his family. And this is part of her becoming a model of faith for all believers. Uh, and this, I think, is great news for all of us who might feel outcasted. This is great news for all of us who may feel marginalized or, or forgotten in society. Because what we see is Rahab's story points us to the very nature of God, that his grace abounds for all people. His grace is not just set for some, not just directed towards a certain few, but rather towards all people. Right? This is something unique about Christianity, which sets it apart from any other religion uh, of the world. It's, it's Christianity's ability to reach all people. Right? Of every tongue, tribe, and nation. We see that in Revelation, where the end days, the last days, we see that all peoples are represented before God. It's not just towards the Asian Americans. It's not just towards uh, Caucasians or blacks or, or, or Mexicans, whatever. It's aimed towards everybody. Christianity, the, the gospel message, is, is not bound by any social, eth ethnic, or cultural lines. Uh, and, and, and that... That is incredible. Uh, there's a little graphic here. It's really small. I, I, I thought it'd be bigger. But, but as you see here, this is all the major religions of the world in different colors. And this dark, kind of maroony, purple, I don't know, whatever it is, my dad's colorblind. Um, uh, it, like that is Christianity in its reach as the major religion. 
There's no major continent that isn't touched by Christianity. And, and I know Islam, and, and um, had, that's where the major uh, portions of, of Islam is. Um, but Christianity's in there too. Now, what is it about Christianity that, that has such far reaches? I've got to be honest with you, I don't think it's because the church has been particularly good with uh, evangelizing or missions. In fact, if we look through history, we're pretty bad at it. We do some incredibly awful things in the name of God. Just I mean, look about, if you learned about California history or uh, American history, when the Europeans came in, the Spanish missions, didn't go well for the Native Americans. Same with the Crusades. Slaughtered millions. Awful. In fact, we've done a pretty poor job. I don't think it's because the church has done a, a fantastic job preaching the name of God. I think it's because of the message of the gospel itself is made for all people. Because our God is gracious towards all people. Because his message of salvation is that it does not matter who you are or what you've done, God's grace still remains for you. It is still given to you. It is still uh, offered as a gift to you. It is a grace-based salvation, not works-based like the rest of the world. All right, it's nothing that we can achieve or gain by our own efforts, which is what every other religion focuses on. What can you do to earn your salvation? No, this gospel of grace says that God's grace extends to all, even those who feel forgotten. See, there's a God who loves you no matter who you are. And that, that's the beauty of the Christian gospel. Whether you're outcasted because you were born into the caste system in India, right? or whether you were a child abandoned at birth and, and left uh, and, and to grow up on your own in an orphanage in Romania, or you're a widow taking care of a family in the Congo by yourself, uh, or a prostitute dealing with addiction walking in the street, city streets of San Francisco. It does not matter who you are. The gospel of Jesus is for you. It says God loves you and welcomes you in no matter who you are. As long as, like Rahab, you put your faith in him. You, you begin a relationship with him. You love him as he loved you first. Friends, the thing is, it doesn't matter who you are or what you're dealing with in life. It doesn't matter if you are like Rahab because God's grace is still extended to you. And so I, I know for some of us that may be hard to believe. I've heard uh, this, this line, uh, God, if you actually knew who, you, who I was, if you knew what I've done, there's no way you would love me. And I, I've heard that repeated many times. And I gotta be honest with you, in reading the Bible, in all my years, I have yet to come across a passage that makes that true. In fact, I've, I've continually come upon passage after passage after passage where that is the exact opposite. This God of Scripture says that there is never a time where you are so far, you are so far gone that I, my love has run dry. There's no number of times you can fail that God turns his back on you. Sorry, 793 was the magic number. You did 794. It's over. It's like, that doesn't exist. See, Rahab understood somehow in her situation this rich theological truth about God God's grace abounds for all his children. God's grace abounds for us. He's a gracious God. Otherwise, I would never attempt to make this deal. This God must be a gracious God, right? His grace must be offered to all people. Otherwise, why would I dare as a prostitute, as a Canaanite woman, ask for his grace? Why would I dare? It's because I believe that his grace is offered to all. 
I believe his grace is an abounding, overflowing grace. Therefore, I'm not just going to ask for my own salvation. I'm going to ask for my family's salvation because I believe he will offer that grace to me and them. And that grace also abounds for you. All right, if you're a non-believer here, if you're not a Christian and you're just trying to figure this thing out, you have questions and, and doubts and, and, and all that, welcome, first off. Um, but I, I want to make it clear that this gospel, this good news of Jesus, this salvation that is offered is given to you directly. Right? It, it, it's offered to you despite who you are, despite what you've done. And, and, and if you look around, I, I know we all might be, we all like, might look very pleasant, very nice people, but you are sitting in the midst of misfits, criminals, and weirdos. This is who we are. The bunch of the least who've been welcomed into the family of God. Not because we've done anything great, not because of our accolades, not because of our success, but simply because God said, I love you. And we said, oh, dang, that's awesome. Thank you. If you're a non-believer, welcome. This is the grace of God. And his grace is extended to you. I ask you to consider that. And if you're a Christian, I know this comes as like, okay, yeah, we know this. We've heard this. I get this. But I think you and I know there are times when we are so broken, where our life is so miserable, when our failures are so pronounced that we find ourselves on our knees thinking, God, how could you still love me? If you're discouraged by your failures, you're backsliding, you have to understand again and again, this is why we need the gospel preached to us constantly, you will never reach the end of his grace. You're not powerful enough. That's his grace to us. My grace remains. Be encouraged by his grace. Third, uh, God's promises endure forever. His promises endure. And so this is a big picture idea. And so to understand this, we actually have to go backwards and forwards. Uh, To go backwards, we have to, again, understand that here in Joshua chapter 2, this is a continuation of God's promises to Israel uh, that that are now being fulfilled through Joshua, right? Uh, If you remember, 40 years prior, uh, God takes the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, and... You know, just to thank him as a response, they complain all the way through the desert, right? And, and God's like, great, okay, great. If you, you really want to be like this, right? I mean, imagine the parents driving your kids to Disneyland. Oh, we there yet? Oh, I need to pee. You know, it's like complaining the whole way down, except this is worse. <laughs> this is infinitely worse. They, they say things like, why did you take us out here to die? I mean, imagine that. You save people from slavery. They're like, wow, thanks for killing us out here. At least we had meat back in, in Egypt. And it's like, oh, really? okay, you know, God, of course, is angry. And, and Moses intercedes and says, God, spare them. I'm sorry, spare them. And, Mo, and God, out of his kindness, his mercy says, fine, I will allow them to live, but none of them can enter the promised land. Their descendants, sure, but no one of this group except, you know, Caleb and Joshua will enter in, all right? But again, this is continuing his promises that he said, I will bring you into the promised land, Israel, Right? And after 40 years of waiting, those people have died off. It's a new generation. Somehow, after 40 years, news of their victory over uh, Egypt and the Amorite kings remains. And, and we see that because here, Rahab, once she meets the spies from Israel, oh, where are you from? They say, Israel. She's like, I know what your God has done. 40 years after. This is not four months later or four weeks later. This is 40 years later. Still, the people around know of them 
and know what their God did. Fear has fallen upon us. We melt away before you. Huh. This is, this is God's promise is still, be, still, still working behind the scenes. And, and now we see the fear lives in their enemies, which, which works to their advantage because it convinces Rahab that in her fear of God, I need to help you guys. This is God's promises still continuing to, to, to come true and, and be fulfilled because here Rahab protects them. Israel has done nothing, right? They, they haven't run around it with donkeys, like throwing off flyers about what their God did 40 years ago. This is God working in foreign powers so that they will inherit the promised land just like he promised them years, decades ago. Now that's backwards, right? If we look forward, we understand that his faithfulness doesn't end here. His promises don't end here. If you read the rest of the Old Testament, uh, recently I read through Judges, it's dark. We see Israel continually failing God. They continue to reject God. They, they're unfaithful to him to, to repeatedly. It's kind of their MO, uh, and it leads them to punishment, more punishment and judgment from God. Uh, as he tries to wake them up, he you know, brings out the Babylonians, the uh, Assyrians, to, to be his judgment upon them, and, and even exiles them out of this land later on. Um, and, and this question is kind of threaded throughout the latter parts of the Old Testament. Are God's promises still good? Are his promises still good? Right, especially since the situation is so awful where, where we've been defeated, our, our cities have been burned, we've been taken out, and we're living as slaves again. God, how are your promises still good? How can we be sure that his promises endure through all this? And we actually find that Rahab is part of the answer to this question that has been embedded in from the very pages of Joshua. Because the genealogy of Jesus shows us something fascinating. You always wonder why these passages are, are written into Scripture, the genealogy, like the birth line of, of Christ. Look here in, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 to 6. New Testament. Genealogy of Jesus. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. That's the same Rahab. She is in the very genealogy of Jesus. She's in the Davidic line as the mother of Boaz, the you know, guy who has the, the foot thing with Ruth. Uh, and in other words, she is the great, 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 great grandmother of King David, an ancestor of Jesus. In other words, what we're finding is that Rahab is not just part of the victory story of Israel over Jericho. She's actually part of Israel's future redemption. And not just Israel's future redemption, but the redemption of all people. Because from her descendants will come the ultimate redeemer, the ultimate king, the ultimate savior. From her descendants will come a child who's the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to all of mankind. Because he, Jesus, will save God's people once and for all. Not from physical armies, not from physical enslavement, but enslavement to sin. Enslavement to death. Jesus is part of her line. In other words, even in the darkest parts of Scripture, when it looks like God's people are doomed, God's promises seem to have failed, yet we find that that could not be further from the truth. His promises endure. They continue to be working even in the midst of our greatest failures, our greatest 
moments of, of weakness. And so what does it mean for you that God's promises endure forever? Right? Theologically, yeah, it's an idea we like. We've said it before, and it looks good on a, on a mug. And yet, I, I'm curious, and what I, I want us to ask is, what is it worth when the darkness closes in? When the waves are high? When your marriage is crumbling? When you have a miscarriage? When you lose your mother to cancer? Your child walks from the faith? Yes, God's promises sound nice. It's great if it were true. But what is it worth when I'm drowning and it seems like his promises have stopped working? Right? We're tempted to think like the Israelites, aren't we? Your promises are worthless. You've forgotten about me. Why'd you drag me out here to die? I thought you said you would take care of me. Right? See, hardship and trial is when we find out what our faith is made out of. Right? Because this is when our theology is put to the test especially for people like us. We are theologically heady people. We, we memorize things. We, we love to, to, to read things. And yet, what does all that knowledge do for you? What does that theology do for you when your life is truly falling apart? What does it mean to hear that God's promises endure forever? See, it can't just be a theological truth. It has to be how you live your life. It's the truth that you live your life by. Right? Because life often forces us to search for answers. Life is difficult, it's uncertain, it's painful. And here in Rahab's story, we see God's faithfulness displayed even when it looks like nothing is happening. She is their momentary provider and help. And yet through her descendants comes the eternal provider and help. And we need that. We need that when, when things really aren't working. Right, this is the answer that we need. We, we need an answer that is steadfast and true and, and unchanging. We need a, a, a promise that doesn't depend on circumstance. We, we, we need to be able to endure in all things, and not just endure in all things, but rejoice in all things. That's only possible if that anchor holding us steady remains at all times and even after we're gone. That's found in, in Christ. It's found in the God who sent his only son to die for us, and he who died says, I'm going to take care of you and love you until the very end. And then I'm going to welcome you into my family, into eternity, and we will be together in fellowship. All that I have said I will do, I will do, and you can hold me to that. His faithfulness endures forever. We need that. It's the only way. It's the only way. Let me pray for us. God, we are so fickle at times. We are self-reliant. We believe in our own power. We forget what it's like to be your child. God, uh, we... We ask for your help. God, I don't know what our congregation is going through personally. I know you know each one and, and of their pains and, and their struggles. You know the ways where they are hurting, the ways where they're in need of your reminders of grace. And God, we pray for that today. 
that your promises would not just come to their hearts, but also would they remember that these are promises that endure forever because that's your character. What you said you have done, you will do, you will do, and God, we can rest upon you no matter what happens in this lifetime. God, would you challenge us? Would you convict us to live costly lives of faith in submission to you? We pray that you would transform us, God, in the ways that we are holding back and and trying to live our own lives and show us how much sweeter life could be, how much more joyful it could be in your presence. God, comfort our hurting friends. Remind our, our friends here that your love remains and your love endures and your grace truly extends to the ends of the earth for each person. God, would we love you just like you have loved us. Praise in your son's name.